Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. The Veterans Health Administration cares for millions of the most complex patients in our country. Teaching, research, medical breakthroughs at the VHA have been groundbreaking. Veterans receiving care at the VA hospitals and clinics have a higher customer satisfaction score than patients at private sector hospitals. So why is this institution constantly maligned by healthcare profiteers and hostile politicians? Let's discuss this situation. Well, warm greetings, everybody. We're here with a couple of very special guests, Greg and I, uh, in uh, Washington State in Pittsburgh, and we have Suzanne Gordon uh, with us. And uh, Suzanne, I've, I've been watching a lot of your YouTube videos and read your book, and I think I know you. <laughs> and I'm so excited to chat with you more on some of the things that you're talking about. Uh, you're you're an award-winning journalist. You've written for New York Times, Los Angeles uh, Times. I, I could just go on and on. You're a prolific writer in the field of... Um, of uh, uh, nursing and, and uh, medical uh, services. And you have recently written a book, The Wounds of War, How the VA Delivers uh, uh, Services to Our, or the VHA Delivers Services to our, our Vets. And I just, I found it was just a wonderful book because it, it changed my opinion about the VA and it educated me about the VA. So, Thank you, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm curious as to what your opinion of the VA was before you read the book. I will I will get into that. And 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 Bob um, is from Boners for a retired VHA nurse, and his wife is also a psychiatric nurse that specialized in working with the trauma and the vets and the VHA. And Bob, you and your wife are also uh, involved in the um, union activities or, or organizing associated with the VA and your medical facilities. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, we both served as uh, union presidents. Uh, as I said, she worked at Highland Drive, which is our mental health facility in Pittsburgh. And uh, she was the president there. I was the president in Oakland at uh, the acute care facility. Uh, we had three actually long-term care facility at, uh, it's now called Heinz. It was uh, Aspenwall at the time. And uh, I worked in Oakland. She worked as, in East Liberty. Well, great. What union was it? Uh, AFGE. Oh, cool. Yeah, I know AFG very well. Yeah. Well, Suzanne, we've had on, we had on Kay Tillow. I don't know if you know Kay. She's oh, an activist. She is an activist from Louisville, yes. and we had her on last June and spent the whole hour talking about Medicare for all and her organizing around that, her organizing with nurses. So we're we're certainly interested in this in this topic. Um, and uh, before I turn it over to you, you asked me what my opinion was about the VA. Well, I'm an Air Force brat, and my dad served in combat, and uh, a lot of my friends are Vietnam vets, many of my dear, dear friends. And I always had this feeling that somehow there was 
something wrong with the VA, that it was bureaucratic, that it was cumbersome. After reading your book, I called three vets and to a person, my dear friends, every one of them said they absolutely loved the service and the care and the compassion that they received in the VA. And that is part of the theme of your book. Tell us about your, your interviews and your work in, um, in, in this book. Yes, so, you know, I am, um, I'm not a veteran and I, um, until, until I, I wrote Wounds of War and got involved in VA stuff, I really didn't know that many veterans. I had a friend in Massachusetts who was a Vietnam vet and who basically flew on, I guess it's the C-130s that would bring in the supplies to the troops and take out the dead and wounded. And he ended up spending most of his life battling with alcoholism and basically a prison prisoner of his house watching, you know, with PTSD, watching violent video games. And, and I mean, it was, and, but I didn't know a lot of vets. And, um, you know, I, because, because particularly after the Vietnam War, when they decided to go to the all volunteer military, you know, the veteran population has really changed. And, um, it's now mostly located in the South and the Intermountain West and so forth. So I didn't have a lot of reality checks. I mean, you know, it's very interesting because I, for 35 years, I've written about healthcare um, from the non-MD perspective. I write about nursing. I've written about nursing and I've spent years and years and years in hospitals following nurses and, um, and thus following doctors and other healthcare providers. And nursing is, you know, the largest profession in healthcare, and it's sort of the most visibly invisible. I mean, we know they're there, but we really don't know what they do. And when I left, and also they have a great reluctance to tell their stories, you know, they feel like, oh, we do a, a noble mission. We don't need to tell our stories. You know, it's the gratitude in the patient's eye. And so when suddenly healthcare uh, attacks on nursing and nurse staffing and replacing nurses with AIDS and so forth became around, they were very unprepared to, to sort of explain their, their work and why they were important. And I thought when I started writing about veterans healthcare that I would kind of leave that behind, but I discovered that the VA is like nursing, you know, it's the largest healthcare system in the country and nobody, you know, everybody knows there's a VA hospital. I mean, we all see these signs on the highway, VA hospital exit here, but barely anybody, including me, knew what went on in these hospitals. I mean, they have no idea that they serve anything other than veterans. Um, and I just discovered by accident, I mean, I, I, I did some consulting at the VA about 15 years ago because of my work with nurses and teamwork. And I'm, that's kind of how I discovered the, the system, you know, from the inside. And, and I hadn't got it, you know, I didn't have a clue what they did there. And I spent a lot of time in Palo Alto VA consulting in the OR and polytrauma units. And I thought, you know, wow, this is kind of impressive what they're doing. And, you know, like many of us, I don't have the same view of government, but I thought it was bureaucratic and unresponsive. And then, you know, I discovered, wait a minute, if Johnny doesn't get his PT on time, his parents call their congressman and they do a congressional investigation. 
if I don't get my PT on time, I mean, good luck, you know? So that gave me a little glimpse into the VA. And, um, and then I, in 2014, I just came up with this idea of writing, because I write about health systems. I edited a collection. I edited a book series on healthcare for Cornell University Press. And I just suddenly occurred to me, wow, you know, the VA, this could, this is a healthcare system. Um, maybe it would be interesting to look at what can happen in the healthcare system. I was, I've been longtime friends with Bernie Sanders. I talked to Bernie about it. And I also knew and from Pittsburgh, from the Pittsburgh VA. I don't know if you guys know Raj Jain. Raj, oh, yeah. yeah, so Raj, you know, the, the Pittsburgh VA, oh my goodness, I don't, you may remember this, Bob, but they did a very interesting, um, uh, effort initiative to combat and reduce methicillin resistance MRSA methicillin resistance staphylococcus aureus super horrible hospital infection and they launched this in Pittsburgh and then took it nationwide and I got to know this guy Rajiv Jain and, and a nurse at the VA who I'm so sorry I've forgotten her name but they launched this initiative and it was written up in a prestigious medical journal, I think the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was a very successful initiative. And I read about it in the Boston Globe because that was when they were writing good things sometimes about the VA. And I was really intrigued by the fact that they were doing this initiative and the initiative was led by a doctor and a nurse, but they were recruiting housekeepers and transport workers and all sort of not the usual suspects. Um, and I was intrigued and I got to know Raj, who then later went to become deputy undersecretary or assistant something for VA patient care services in, in Washington, DC. So me and Raj and, and Bernie Sanders sort of cooked up this idea for me to write this book. And this was under Obama, under um, secretaries Shinseki and Robert McDonald. And um, basically, you know, once, once I got in, once the secretaries gave me permission at the highest levels, I, I had access to the entire VA system. It's, it's very interesting because that could never happen now. And it's certainly even under Biden and it couldn't have, and it would never have happened under Trump. So I spent five years kind of wandering around the country. You know, I called the A central office and said, I want to go to Palo Alto. I want to go to Milwaukee. I want to go to, you know, I want to go to New Haven. And they would just organize things for me. And I would just go into these hospitals and, and they let me see what they do. And, and I'm a journalist, so, and, and a researcher. And I don't, you know, if somebody tells me care is great, I mean, that uh, congratulations, you know, I want to see it. Right. And, and I talked to hundreds of vets. I sat in on, I learned how to meditate with a group of vets at the San Francisco VA. I sat in on, I mean, I, you know, I learned to, to do, I learned about this amazing technique in patient care called motivational interviewing by taking a three-day workshop at the VA. And I was a participant, you know, I'm like, okay, it's my tax money at work. And I mean, I have to say that I've, and I, I've covered, you know, healthcare in the private sector for something like 35 years. I have never seen 
as many dedicated professionals and, and other occupations as I've seen at the VA. I, I really, I mean, there are a lot of doctors and nurses in the private sector that, you know, they're very dedicated, they're wonderful, et cetera, but they work in a fee-for-service, you know, for-profit, market-driven system, even the not-for-profits are for-profit. And um, their attitude toward their patients, it, you know, you're kind of a number, right? And the folks at the VA, it's like, you know, falling around, I mean, they're just, they, they're falling over for vets. I mean, like, obviously it's a huge system and we can kind of go into describing it. And so obviously there are employees who got out of bed on the wrong day and who were crummy managers. I mean, I think managers in hospitals tend to be atrocious um, pretty much across the board and the VA's management needs a lot of help and work. But I've never seen people who are so mission-driven um, and for whom the veteran really, you know, the patient really is special, you know? Um, let's, let's, let's just, let's back up a little bit. Because I want, I, what I learned from your book is at, at times the VA wasn't always great. Uh, you know, as a Vietnam era fellow with many of my friends going to Vietnam, coming back with a post- Vietnam syndrome later to get in the DSM-3 as post-traumatic stress. The VA kind of fought that diagnosis initially. They, they were nervous about too many vets having disabilities. The, the uh, early on, I think the, the care was problematic and there was a seminal article 2014 where they had the, oh, the wait time problem with the VA and it 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 was reminds me of Naomi Klein make let no crisis go to go to misuse it, it became a used as a cultural to um, uh, criticize and to um, maybe some of the criticism was good maybe it wasn't um, was that a legitimate issue was the late time was the wait time issue legitimate in 2014 and what is how about it now what do you think the wait time issue it's a built around staffing you got to have the staff you got to have the uh, capacity to take care of the patients and it's a congress has to be willing to fund it and central office has to be willing to hire uh, right period. Yes, and that's and and bob you're absolutely right and i want to but i want to back up okay. because the va in in, during the Vietnam War was not the VA um, of either today or even the mid 90s. So the VA has the, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA refers to the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, which became a, a full cabinet department under Reagan. And, um, and, you know, the VA started out in the Civil War is like soldiers' homes, right? And then it expanded in this conflict and expanded in that conflict and expanded after World War II. And by the time Vietnam came, it was a hospital, mostly an inpatient hospital system. And it was never really prepared. It was not prepared for Vietnam. And so it was pretty bad, you know, uh, when the Vietnam vets came. Um, the VA's record on 
um, post-traumatic stress was complicated because um, the VA, while Congress wouldn't recognize this, you have to make a distinction between Congress and the VA. A lot of the problems, and Bob has alluded to that, of the VA come out of Congress. And I would argue the American people's refusal to pay for the full cost of war. You know, we always get in these conflicts. We're all excited. It's all going to end right, you know, right away. We'll be there for a couple of months. And then they drag on. And they never factor in the cost of caring for the casualties of war. This has been true since the revolution, you know, and anybody who wants to go back to the history of America's relationship to veterans should read Joseph Ellis's new book called The Cause. It's absolutely fascinating. We've been screwing veterans and active duty service members for as long as we've had veterans and active duty service members. Um, and so, um, when you blame the VA, you really, it's Congress, you know, and it's ultimately us. I mean, the American people elect people to Congress and they don't, we don't want to pay taxes. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to be drafted. Uh, we don't want to fight. We love it when other people fight. And we, you know, I mean, the, there is the version of, you know, Donald Trumpist, I don't like losers, you know. Uh, we don't we don't want to take care of the people who've lost limbs and and whose psyches have been damaged by war. And so um, that was kind of a, a that has been a pervasive thematic in in our care of both active duty service members who, you know, in the Revolutionary War didn't have shoes and uniforms. And today they live on substandard bases with contaminated water and mold in their houses, you know. Um, and we don't want to pay the vets what we promised them, just like we didn't want to pay, you know, the officers in the Revolutionary War the the the, the pensions we promised them. Um, this is this is a forever theme, and that the VA is impacted by that because it gets its money from Congress, right? And if you don't want to pay taxes, and you don't want to pay. You know, they, they're always complaining, oh, we gave the VA, you know, more money last year than ever before. Yeah, but if you need $100 billion, you get 75, you know, you still need 25 more billion, right? So um, in 1980, in 1994, so up until 1994, you had a system that was largely hospital-based, wasn't that great. Um, you know, a lot of problems. It was often not ready to face the, the, the consequences of the conflicts that it had. Um, and in 1994, Bill Clinton hired a guy named Ken Kaiser, Kenneth Kaiser, K-I-Z-E-R, to be his undersecretary for health. And Ken launched what's known as the Kaiser Revolution, and he transformed the VA into what I would argue is the most effective healthcare system in the country. And it still is to this day. Um, this may be a shock to folks listening, but the VA is not only the largest healthcare system in the nation, the most cost-effective healthcare system in the nation, even though it deals with the most complex patients in the nation, um, but it's also the only fully integrated and coordinated care in the nation. And I can get into that in a minute. But Kaiser changed the VA. And he brought in outpatient services, mental health, patient safety. He, it was his, he and his team just did an amazing amount. 
And by the early 2000s, Business Week and, um, and Forbes and Harvard Business Review were saying that the VA was like a model for American healthcare. Well, George Bush comes in and there's all these, you know, conservative publications saying the VA is better than the private sector. Government is better than the private sector. And, and the Koch brothers are listening to this and so forth and these conservatives in Congress and they do not like this one bit because that contradicts their framing of the world which is that government can do no good and the private sector no wrong. So the, they started shutting down PR about how good the VA is and I would argue that, you know, they, they started launching efforts to, you know, cut budgets, to cut staff, to cut services. And the Phoenix wait time, quote unquote, scandal, which happened in 2014, was a product of, I would say, conservative efforts to cripple the VA. Um, they imposed a very, the, the VA central office imposed a stupid, unrealistic standard for appointment, timeliness of appointments that, and they attached small bonuses to administrators for meeting those standards. And as Bob said, they didn't take into account staffing issues. And so in some VA facilities like Phoenix, they were rigging wait time data to show that you know, things were better than they were. This was not all over the country. It was only in some places. And basically what happened is the Koch brothers had funded a group, an anti-VA group, an anti-government group called Concerned Veterans for America. You had Jeff Miller in Congress as head of the, um, um, the, the, the chairman of the VA, Me. the House Committee oh, on Affairs. And they took advantage of this problem and they decontextualized it and they fed it to the right-wing media and they fed it to the to the you know sensationalist pack mainstream media and you had this really billionaire financed dark money financed effort to tarnish the reputation of the VA and you know even in Phoenix where they had they really you know there was a it was a scandal I mean there was a problem but nobody ever mentioned the fact that Phoenix um, is a system where you have a lot of these snowbird veterans coming in. So you get an influx of 25,000 veterans for four months of the year. That's a lot of people flooding into your system. How do you hire staff, nurses, you know, physicians, et cetera, on the basis of oh, hey guys, things will be really cool for four months and then I don't know, we may not need you. You know, it's extremely difficult to do that. None of the coverage ever mentioned that. None of the, none of the coverage of VA wait times ever mentions the fact that we don't have enough primary care doctors in America. And the VA is, um, you know, dependent on the supply of primary care doctors. It doesn't have a university that system that produces its own doctors and nurses and interesting, the, uni the uniformed university, uniformed university system in outside Washington, D.C. that you know produces doctors, nurses, dentists, and so forth for the military and public health service doesn't serve the VA, um, even though it should. So yes, there was a scandal, but the scandal basically has been, you know, it it it's like 
it, it has impacted the coverage in the media. The Koch brothers have um, continued to try to trash the VA. Another reason why it's easy to trash the VA is because it's the most accountable healthcare system in the country. So the, the VA Office of Inspector General, the Government Accountability Office, you have a, a glitch with one patient in the VA, one patient, one tiny healthcare facility, and it produces a report, you know, and then the media gets a hold of these reports like USA Today, and, and you know, and the, and the right wing funders, you know, make sure they get a hold of it. And if there's if there's problem in the private sector, they have a they have a desire to hide the problem as opposed to make it publicly uh, uh, available. And, and in the private sector, if you have a problem, like if you, you know, only 2.6% of legitimate malpractice cases ever go to court. So if you're a patient in the private sector and you suffer the same thing as a patient in the VA, good luck, you know, going to the New York Times. I mean, unless it's, you know, some unbelievably egregious thing that happens to some teenage kid on a basketball court like Rory Stanton in the in the 2000s, you know, at New York University, um, where he died because of a scratch. I mean, these things are happening every single day in spades. I mean, you know, in Vermont, if, if 500 patients can't get sleep apnea treatment at Fletcher Allen Hospital for eight months, that never makes the front page of the New York Times. But if some tiny community hospital in rural Oregon, you know, has a few beds that are vacant, you know, the New York Times puts it on the front page because it's the VA. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. So I have a, I, that's interesting what you said. I'm not a big fan of Bill Clinton, but you basically said that Bill Clinton's secretary came in and turn this organization around by providing integrated services, mental health services, where they doing medical records, universal medical records then too, that type of thing. And it created a functional, good system that by the nature of it, of it being so good, it, it wasn't funded up to the level of, of handling the patients properly. Is that correct? No, no. Um the the so it was the undersecretary for health clinton's undersecretary for health ken kaiser who transformed the system he unleashed all this innovative talent at the on the ground level at the front lines and basically began a process of innovation that continues to this day and the problem is that and study after study shows that the VA delivers better care at lower cost to more complex patients than any other healthcare system in America. Diabetes management, cancer care, mental health care, emergency room care. A new study just came out two weeks ago in the British Medical Journal, uh, the, one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, that um, documented that if you are a veteran and you are Medicare eligible and you go to a a, a private sector ER, and they studied over 583,000 patients. Um, you have a 20% increased risk of dying in the private sector ER, and it, and it costs 21% more to pay for that, that substandard care. And in the VA, conversely, if you're a vet and you, and you go to the ER, 
in a VA, you're much more likely to live in that, what they call that mortality advantage lasts for a year, for more than a year. That's because they have coordinated care in the VA. So, you know, a patient goes into the ER and, and they immediately notify everyone that has anything to do with that patient through the American, through the electronic medical record. The VA's primary care patient aligned care team mobilizes and reaches out to the patient. They get the patient everything they need. They depend way more on outpatient services than inpatient services. And, you know, the patient just gets care that's coordinated. In the private sector, it's disconnected and they, and they rely way more on inpatient, you know, expensive revenue generating inpatient hospitalization and doing all kinds of procedures that are more costly. Um, the VA is the only system that uses kind of telephone contact as much following an emergency. The same is true, I mean, of dialysis care. You know, there, there are all these studies that the media literally never reports on that shows um, how excellent the VA system is. And it's excellent even though it's underfunded and understaffed. So imagine what it could do if it was fully funded and fully staffed. I mean, it achieves these goals. That's what's so extraordinary. Um, being underfunded, understaffed, and underappreciated and bashed by the media and Congress, you know? I mean, these people are fighting, and the VA is, is fighting with, fighting the kind of media war with two hands tied behind its back because they don't have enough PR staff to get the message out, and Washington doesn't help them. Washington Central Office doesn't help them get the message out. Tell me about the warm handoff and the integration of yes. nursing care with doctors, the, the team approach, which you wouldn't have in the private sector. And maybe you can weigh in on this too, Bob, but where it seems like more people were involved in a coordinated way around the care of the patient, as opposed to just the doctor writing a note and saying, that's what you're going to do. What, tell me about that. So basically, um, every VA is organized around primary care. They also, by the way, invented geriatric care and have probably the only system that depends on geriatric care. Um, and so um, the VA basically has these primary care teams called patient line care teams. And they meet every morning in every VA and they include a nurse, a clerk, um, a resident if there is one, a nurse practitioner if there is one involved in the primary care physician um, and, and, the, and a licensed practical nurse. And, and these teams meet, if you're interested in finding out more about it, you can go to my website, which is um, suzannegordon.com and click on how to huddle. So these, these team huddles that meet every morning and Bob, I'm sure you could talk more about this. What's interesting is these huddles in the VA aren't, at least in many VAs, aren't run by, you know, the hierarchical patriarchal doctor, but often by the, the clerk or the, the licensed practical nurse, which is how you should do it. They coordinate patient care and, um, and the, the primary care, you know, the primary care clinic has pharmacists in it who sit with patients and tell them 
spend hours sitting with a patient, telling a patient how to take their meds, uh, dietitians who deal with nutritional issues, and really importantly, psychologists and psychiatric nurse practitioners who deal with mental health problems. So in a normal outpatient setting, primary care doctor's office, it, there are very few that are solo anymore. You will never have pharmacists or dietitians or, or you know, mental health providers right on the unit. So basically, VA has pioneered the integration of services and also the integration of mental health and primary care. So if a vet says, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I have insomnia, I have nightmares, whatever, in the private sector, a person who says that, you know, the, 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 the primary care doc gives you a referral to a mental health professional who may or may not be in the same system. And then you have to make the appointment and then you have to go to the appointment. And a lot of people don't make the appointment and then they make the appointment and they don't go. Well, in the VA, the, the physician or, or NP or, or PA will take the patient and do what's called this warm handoff. So he, will, he or she will walk the patient down to the psychiatric professional, mental health professional, and that person will see the, the vet, the patient right then and there and schedule more appointments. So, you know, veterans, like most of us, very few people want to sign up to go to a mental health professional. They also don't want to sign up to go to a new dietitian to learn about how they should eat better and, you know, lose weight. I mean, and so any step that you can remove to make the contact direct, you know, um, really is, is critical in, in enhancing outcomes. And that's why they have such great outcomes. I mean, palliative care, I'm very, very into palliative care. And, you know, because in, in our system- Explain that. I, I know what that is, but maybe people don't know what palliative sure. care is. So palliative care is essentially what you get when you can't cure a terminal disease, right? It, for cancer, for, you know, a, a certain end stage, end stage renal problems, all kinds of problems that you can't cure, right? You can't, they're not gonna go away, cancer, whatever. And so um, rather than giving patients endless futile treatment that's toxic and, and doesn't enhance their life, the VA has one of the best, maybe the best palliative care and hospice systems in the, in the nation, maybe even the world. And these palliative care teams are called in so if Joe has cancer, you know, um, they will be called in and they will work with the oncologist um, and so forth and social workers and they will work with the family and they're extremely skilled. I mean, I spent weeks with the palliative care team in San Francisco and wrote about it in the book. And this is all through the system. And this is what's really important to remember. VA physicians, VA staff, are, are on salary. They don't work in a fee-for-service system. In a fee-for-service system, an oncologist, a cancer specialist, is paid for every infusion of chemotherapy. They're paid for every procedure. They're paid for every visit. So if you turn a cancer patient over to palliative care or hospice, you lose revenue. 
by assuring that that patient has a better death. And so you can always justify your clinging on to your revenue stream by not, you know, turning the patient, referring the patient to hospice or palliative care by, oh, we don't want to deprive the patient of hope. You know, oh, yes, we understand they have pancreatic cancer and they have four weeks to live. But, you know, if we give them one more infusion of chemotherapy, that will be hopeful for them. And, oh, yes, well, they may end up in the hospital for two weeks with three different infections as a result of this chemotherapy. <laughs> but, but they still have hope and their family still has hope. That doesn't happen in the VA. Right. Um, I mean, one could go on and on. Bob, I'd be really interested in your experiences as, as a nurse, you know, uh, in, in the kind of collaboration which I've seen at the VA, which I don't think, it, you know, exists in the private sector very much. Well, you know, we just returned from a uh, funeral service for uh, my wife's cousin in Connecticut. And uh, he, the, he was a veteran that died with... Uh, head and neck cancer and uh, the family just raved about the care and about those meetings with uh, you know all the different uh, support staff and uh, the physicians and they couldn't uh, you know couldn't have been uh, more complimentary of VA care but you know on Kaiser too I went through that period I I, uh, I saw him testify several times and uh, to implement some of the things he he, he uh, the programs that he was uh, uh, promoting, you know, it forced the VA to hire staff. It made things better for us uh, as nurses on the floor. Uh, you know, it, it was just, uh, I, I, well, the first night I worked in the VA was 1990. I worked uh, 12 to 8. I came in and uh, I was the only RN for 40 patients, 10 fresh pre-ops and 10 fresh post-ops. I had a pooled nursing assistant. That was my staff. And uh, and we were expected to make it through the night. I had to hang all my own IVs. I had to mix all my own IV uh, antibiotics, uh, pull up all my meds. We had like a little drugstore in there. We pulled up all of our own meds. We didn't have uh, single. So, you know, those, those improvements were dramatic. And, uh, and uh, you know, I recommend the VA now. I'm a big supporter to, uh, and, and, and I, I love the staff. I think that the staff is, uh, even when times were bad and, and, and we didn't have the staff, we, we had to fight the bureaucracy. We found ways to make the system work. We found ways to, you know, if I had to hide things in my locker, which I did, you know, because I couldn't get them uh, for the patients, but, uh, but we did that. And, and you know, I, I've never seen a more de dedicated, uh, and, and I worked in the private sector before I went to the VA, so, so I know. Uh, was able to compare both. And, and under COVID, you know, the, 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 the mission-drivenness, I mean, most people don't know that the VA also, it has four missions to give clinical care to vets, to teach, you know, to serve as the hub of the, the nation's health professional teaching system. I mean, 70% of America's doctors and training train at the VA, nurses, psychologists, et cetera. It's the biggest research hub next to the National Institute of Health in the country. But it also has a fourth mission to serve as a backup um, for the nation um, in a national emergency. And it did that under COVID. Um, VA staff went to other hospitals to help out. They opened their beds to civilians in, in places like New York and New Jersey and Louisiana. VA took over nursing homes 
in various states. Um, I mean, you know, I think that one of the things that, that I really want to talk about, because I, I know we don't have forever, is that they are now trying to privatize the VA. And the Biden administration is leading the charge in implementing Trump administration policies. I, can, can I stop you right there? This article that you wrote, Trump under the radar pushed to dismantle the veterans health care, re reads like a Stephen King horror novel. And the he was clear and systematic with the support of the Koch brothers in dismantling the dismantling the VA by pushing certain services away and then all of a sudden they don't have enough people in the facility so they close the facility so that was two years ago and what's happened is Trump's I mean is Biden still yes using this as a game so plan this is in 2018 with the support of almost all Democrats except for 79 people led by Nancy Pelosi in the House and four people in the Senate led by Bernie Sanders. They passed the VA, the Trump-initiated VA Mission Act, which was assiduously supported by so-called Democrat John Tester and Mark Takano, who's also a Democrat. And they passed this Trump um, Koch brothers uh, nightmare, which uh, of the V called the VA Mission Act. It was supported by all the veteran service organizations. Um, and it outsourced, it, it dramatically accelerated the outsourcing of veteran patients to the private sector. And it also mandated something called the Asset and Infrastructure Review Air Commission, which has yet to be appointed, but is, is supposed to be appointed very soon, which is like a BRAC, like, like a base closing commission, which will compile a list of, of uh, facilities to either shutter, consolidate, repurpose, or improve. And this list is sent to the president and then must be voted up or down in Congress. So basically, if somebody thinks the Pittsburgh VA shouldn't be shuttered and it's on the list, there's nothing Congress can do. They have to vote the list up or down. The secretary, who in my view is just the ultimate tech technocrat, who has no vision of or understanding of the problems of the private sector or the extraordinary promise and um, realities of VA, um, he is just sort of making the trains run on time, you know, and he has compiled a list of facilities to shutter, to close, of program services, units, beds, et cetera, to close. And he is releasing that list on March 14th. And I really hope that labor activists and healthcare activists and Medicare for all activists jump on the bandwagon and support those of us who are fighting what really will be the largest privatization of healthcare exercise in American history. And this is led by Biden's, uh, you know, by the Biden administration. Uh, it's Unreal. deeply disappointing. Um, and they have implemented a whole lot of other stuff that uh, the Justice, I mean, the Biden Justice Department has just issued a ruling that is attacking you know, the structure of research partnerships with private universities that have existed for decades and claiming that if a 
VA researcher works, you know, at, at Dartmouth or Yale or, or Boston University or Duke University or whatever, and is paid for by the private sector, part of his salary is paid by the private sector and part of it is paid for the VA, that somehow that's a conflict of interest, an unacceptable conflict of interest. Meanwhile, they're, they're, they're you know, so you have these academic partnerships where the private sector is essentially subsidizing good things for the public. Meanwhile, you have partnerships in which the private sector is cannibalizing and stealing from the public coffers to fund its own profiteering. And those are fine. You know, and I, the, the, the things that bothers me too about this, and Bob, you might weigh in this because of your wife's psychiatric uh, nurse support for the PTS um, vets. I, I have so many vet friends that are, we're in combat. And to this day, I'm 70, to this day are struggling still with the psychiatric features uh, with what they were exposed to. And I, I have a good friend that's probably one of the better um, therapists in the VA on, uh, he and his wife both working with the vets on the post-traumatic stress and adjustment to from combat. My my um, my internist doesn't know about this. You know, my in, my internist doesn't know when these vets start talking about some of these symptoms, how how difficult it is to parse them out and how they affect their lives. And you and your your book is full of these statistics of the vets that are struggling with the homelessness and alcoholism and all of these things because of their combat experience. And so now you're going to have the private sector just take this population and, and they're going to be the experts on this. I, I, is that just as ludicrous? That's horrible. Am I right? Well, Rand Corporation did a study of New York State um, private sector practitioners, nurse practitioners, mental health practitioners, primary care docs, PTs, and they they set up seven criteria um, that would that, uh, upon which they judged their competence and capacity to take care of veterans. And two percent of those they surveyed met the criteria. Most most primary care docs don't even ask patients if they're veterans. I mean, we're all. Is anybody on this call a vet? Uh, no. Okay. Have you has any doctor you have ever encountered asked you if you served in the military? No. I rest my case. Well, and the I know a lot of uh, psych psychologists who were trained at the VA. the The training that they get with cognitive behavioral therapy and the uh, immersion therapy and the um, motivational interviewing and all these kind of therapies you talked about, the, those are those are hours and hours of supervised clinical training. And, and again, to a person, every clinical psychologist who's ever been trained at the VA says it's the best training they've received. It's, it's, it's hours and hours of very good supervised care to get them to be had, good yeah, therapists. Workshops, and then they get six months of supervised training. And so and you can't get that in the private sector. I mean, it, and, and in this RAND study, 70%, um, over 70% of, of mental health practitioners didn't, did not provide evidence-based care 
for their patients. I mean, the one thing that Bob knows, and, and Bob could talk about this as a clinician, and that I learned is that veterans have very specific problems, right? You have to have, if we're gonna have to ha have an Imperial army and we're still playing, you know, deploy them in Russia, deploy them here, deploy them there. And we haven't even gotten into the Ukraine yet. You know, um, uh, you need a system that understands the very specific problems these people have. They are exposed to way different things than you and me, right? They, they have toxic exposures, they have mental health problems, they have, you know, they have distrust of government, they have moral injury, you know, they have, they have, you know, adjustment problems. And you have to have a system that puts it all together. I mean, the VA doesn't just deliver discrete medical appointments, it deals with homelessness and employment and, 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 and you know social problems, et cetera. It's a it's a population social determinants of health system, and you have people in Washington who don't get it. You know who think that a healthcare system is just a bunch of you know doctors appointments, right? You know episodic doctors appointments. I mean, Bob, I'd I'd be really interested in hearing about you know your experience of dealing with veteran patients who are not easy. I mean, these are some of the most pissed off grumpy people, you know, I mean, they, they, they're, there's a small subset of them that, you know, are the danger to themselves and others. I mean, they kill people, you know, they're trained to kill people. And, and some of them do not all of them, but. What Bob, do you say, Bob, weigh in on that. Well, uh, Suzanne's exactly correct. Uh, those were the patients uh, that were challenges that, uh, you know, I, I, I actually liked a, uh, I would volunteer in, in morning report to take care of, uh, of those kinds of patients. I, I don't know, you know, I just knew that uh, they needed a lot of care. And, uh, you know, if they put the call light on, you know, I was there, you know, it, well, I wasn't there 20 minutes later, you know, oh yeah, I'll be back. Uh, you know, I try to deal with, with their problem immediately. But, uh, you know, that's correct. I mean, they have, uh, mental problems and physical problems and social problems and uh you know it's uh it's a challenge it can be a challenge but, uh, well in a sector i mean i'm sure you experience this bob i mean i have almost never been in a va when somebody hasn't you know thrown a chair at somebody or screamed and yelled at somebody and sure. in the private sector they teach doctors how to fire those patients you don't fire these patients at the va you you're I mean, in, in, we had this tragic situation in, in Napa County in Napa, California um, in 2018, where there was a small program called The Pathway Home. Um, it had been written up in the movie and, and book, Thank You for Your Service. And they took care of, you know, very, very small group of Iraq and Afghanistan vets with PTSD and other problems. And they had a, a patient who was very difficult and they needed to discharge him. And he got extremely pissed off and he took five people hostage with his, you know, um, arms that he knew how to use. And he ended up killing himself and three, the three women who ran the program. And that program had to close if somebody kills somebody, if a patient kills somebody in the VA, they don't close the system. Um, you know, I'm really worried. Uh, I mean, I just think that um, 
you know, the private sector wants the money that the VA has. These hospitals want the money, but these veterans are not easy patients. They are very complex. They have very specific problems and they can be, some of them, a pain in the neck. And I'm worried about, you know, um, I mean, they, they don't want homeless vets in their clinics, you know? Um, and I'm really worried about what's gonna happen when and if, and I, I hope we can fight it, you know, under the Biden administration, whose VA secretary just fundamentally doesn't get it. Um, they send more and more people to the private sector. And by the way, I think the overwhelmed private sector, particularly in rural areas, simply does not have the capacity to deal with 9 million veterans. And, and they're not going to make money off them when they privatize them. Try to make money off of them and they'll make some money off of them, but the outcomes will be poor. And, you know, veterans will learn, you know, they've been seduced by the right wing offering them choice. You know, they, we should have choice. We don't want to be entrapped in the nanny state of the VA. Well, they're going to learn what choice means when you have crappy choices in the private sector. You know, we, but, Greg and I have been doing this podcast for a year and this this theme of this neoliberal privatize has come up over and over again. It comes up when we talk about school systems. P parents just need choice. Just take your money and go to this other situation. I, it seems like this is just this is the exact same storyline. It's 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 I don't know. What do you think, Greg? How many times have we talked about this in all of our other different topics? The same thing, the Koch brothers, the dark money, people coming in and trying to gut effective public service systems in order to have the, the vultures of pick them apart for, for funds. Are you depressed, Greg? Capitalism. That's capitalism. Period. Drop, drop the mic, that's, that's just it, huh? Well, we have to fight it. And I think with veterans, you know, veterans actually don't like privatization. It's, they don't want to lose the VA and we just have to figure out how to mobilize them, which I think is why I think it's so, um, you know, Medicare for all activists to really reach out to veterans and learn more about the VA healthcare system. Because if we had Medicare for all, then you lose the mechanism of, um, of, of cannibalizing the VA budget to pay for private sector care. If a veteran wanted to go to a private sector doctor, you know, they could and it, they wouldn't be taken out of the VA budget. So it's, 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 it's really a serious issue. And I mean, one of the things I, I wanna mention is that, that folks should, if they're interested in these issues should, go to a group I worked with. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute. It's veteranspolicy.org and learn more about this. We're fighting this. And also we, my husband, Steve Early and Jasper Craven and I have written a new book, which is coming out in August called Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. And we look at the sort of politics behind all this. And we also really look at the military as work and what it means to work for a reckless employer 
like um, the DOD. So I think there's a lot we can do about it because veterans can, should, should mobilize about the closures that are coming and the privatization and um, you know, really be educated about the perils of, of the broader healthcare system, which is simply not equipped to deal with their problems and, and really any of our problems. I mean, I really think it should be VA for all, not Medicare for all, because right. Medicare right. is a payer, uh, not a system. It's not a provider. You can innovate and change things much more in a system than you can if you're dealing with 6,000 different hospitals, you know? And what, what, well, let's wind things up here, but I want you to just go through a list of what that organization has given us. Uh, the innovations, the therapies, the treatments, just name, name a few things that have come out of the VA that we take for granted sure. that have come from this system. The integration of mental health and primary care, which many systems try to emulate and have a hard time doing. Right. Um, the research, um, I mean- Record, medical records. Well, the, the best electronic medical record system in the country. Um, I mean, thank you VA for my shingles vaccine, the first nicotine patch, the implantable cardiac pacemaker, COVID research. I mean, health equity, it's the only system that, that is, is interested in health equity. Um, Telemental health? Tele, te, well, all telehealth. As the telehealth. best telehealth system in the country, patient safety. I mean, you name it, the VA's done it. And coordinated care, which does, you know, geriatric care, home-based primary care, residential treatment, homelessness programs, employment, you know, vacational rehab, uh, for people like, you know, I had a, a, one of the people I wrote about in Wounds of War was an Iraq vet, had terrible PTSD, went into residential treatment. He was a deputy sheriff. They told him, if you keep being a deputy sheriff, your PTSD is never going to get manageable. And they gave him, you know, thousands of dollars to learn a new trade. I mean, you know, I mean, transportation services and you name it, salsa dancing. I mean, cooking lessons. Just you, you, you mentioned, I think, in your book of when the fires happened in California, yes. they, that actually nurses got on the phone and called every one of their patients yes. and said, are you okay? I, do you need any help? It's under the fourth mission, which nobody knows about. Um, they had a, in a national emergency in, in, in Puerto Rico, the VA hospital was the only functioning hospital on the island. And Civilian people went to that hospital. In, in the hurricanes in Texas, in the freezes in Texas, in the wildfires in California. I mean, you do away with the VA. It's a national gem. It will be a national tragedy. And I hope folks who listen to this and folks in the healthcare reform and social justice community and labor movement, you know, realize what a great healthcare system it is. Obviously there's problems. It's the biggest healthcare system in the country. How could there not be problems? Congress is the biggest problem. Anything that has to do with problems at the VA, it's Congress that is fundamentally at fault. So, you know, I think we need to change the mindset about the VA and realize what a model of a great service it is, not just for veterans, but how it serves the nation. I will link to your um, 
Veterans Policy Organization, and I'll link to uh, your website. And yeah, I let this is not this is the time to pick up the phone and and start to raise a little cane, and uh, hopefully we can stimulate some of that. Right, and also I just want to leave with the one thought that you know many of the assumptions that guide Congress in terms of veterans is the assumption that the veteran population is declining. Well, the veteran population may be declining, but their needs are increasing because they have such complex problems. And and we are and you cannot assume that we're going to not get into another war. I mean, look where we are at this minute with the Ukraine. Right. And you're very clear with that, with the number of vets that are getting, that are older, that are needing services. Uh, you know, my dad received remarkable service from the VA. He had Alzheimer's, and it was a, it was a V. Uh, this is a, a story that I think exemplifies what you're talking about. My sisters and I passed some legislation and got, uh, uh, got. Uh, Seattle Times wrote an article about our family and they mentioned my mother and my father who was suffering of a veteran suffering from dementia. We got a cold call from a social worker at the VA hospital saying, are you aware that there are respite services for yeah. your mother that your father can go to the VA? And my mother received this call and she thought it was a scam. She thought someone was scamming her. So I called the, the social worker back. It was the most wonderful six months of my mother's life, having my father get this respite care in the VA, uh, that, that extra service. And the nursing care there was beyond the pale how good they were with these vets. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I have a friend who was 87 and he was in Kaiser They'd forgotten that he served in the military during the Korean era, but he wasn't in Korea. And I said, you should go to the VA. And he had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and dementia. Kaiser wouldn't give him a hospital bed because he wasn't on hospice, the VA did. He had to pay for respite care. The VA paid for respite care. The VA put him in, in geriatric primary care. The VA sent in personnel and she got, his wife got phone calls from the doctors on a weekly basis, trying to track how, how he was doing. I have never gotten a phone call from a doctor asking me how I'm doing or my husband's doing, you know? So, I mean, really, I wish I was a veteran and could get VA care. I, uh, Bob, you'll get a, you might relate to this. One of the nurses, when my dad was at the respite care, he would be having these anxiety uh, attacks because he couldn't have his wallet. Where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? He couldn't find his wallet. And I mentioned that to the nurse and the nurse that said, oh, oh, okay. And she reached into a drawer and there were like 15 wallets there. And she just reached in and gave him a wallet. And she said, that's such a common anxiety. These men have never been without their wallet. It was like, oh, oh, doesn't everybody know this? Oh, here's a wallet. <laughs> And then when he'd come back the next time, she'd give him another, she'd give him another wallet. That's all he wanted is his wallet, you know? So anyway. anyway. Well, it's been great to talk to you. And I hope that we can talk again when I, when my new I, it, we definitely, I would love to have you on your, your book. You, I learned so much from your book. It was just, it was just a wonderful experience to realize um, what a good story you have to tell and why it needs to be told. So, so thank you. So th much. Thank you. 
Thank you for, for coming and thank you all. Thank you, Bob. It was an honor. Thank you, hey. Fred. It's great to meet you all. You too. Take care. Bye.